0: What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's
1: tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. As a librarian, one of the things I work with
2: my students to develop is critical thinking. The skills involved with critical thinking are complex, but one of the things we teach as we help students to learn to critically express and write arguments is how to identify and avoid common reasoning fallacies. I'm sure most of us have studied these kinds of logical fallacies at one time or another in some kind of English or philosophy class. We know of fallacies like hasty generalizations, where there is too little evidence cited to support an argument or the ad hominem attack, where it's the person, not the argument, that is being addressed. The slippery slope presents an argument where one action inevitably leads to another action, or the red herring makes an argument that distracts from the main argument. There are lots of logical fallacies out there, and each one represents a flaw in reasoning. Now, while it can be fun to name them, knowing what they're called is really less important than knowing that when they are present, an argument is less likely to make sense. As a writer, we know that writing that contains logical fallacies is likely to be weaker writing. And what we want in writing is strength. So we really work with our students to understand how to present these arguments without fallacies and with full and valid information. Writing without fallacies is critical, but understanding logical fallacies is also important for readers. We are better at assessing the truths of advertisements or political arguments if we know how logical fallacies might be used, and if we recognize that they can discredit and weaken an argument. Sadly, today in the news and online discourse, there are lots of great examples of logical fallacies— But these offer great opportunities for us to talk with our kids about how arguments are being presented and help them to develop their own critical reading and writing skills. So here at Rachel's World, we think that maybe it's time to brush up on your understanding of logical fallacies so you can help your kids develop one of those essential skills that will help them to be critical thinkers.
1: In the book Outliers... Author Malcolm Gladwell says his theory is that it takes roughly 10,000 hours of practice to achieve mastery in a field or skill. Our first guest, children's book author and illustrator, Rosemary Wells, talks about the 10,000 hours, and then some, that she put into reading, writing, and drawing from a very young age that eventually led to success in her present profession. It was practice, 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 she said that enabled her to master book writing and illustrating, and to find her niche. Rosemary Wells is the author of 120 books for children, including more than 40 about the beloved bunnies Max and Ruby. She travels all over the country as a tireless advocate for literacy. Wells was born in New Jersey to a playwright father and a ballet dancer mother, who encouraged her artistic bent. She worked as an art director and designer before illustrating her first book, She is the mother of two grown daughters, Victoria and Marguerite, and grandmother to four girls. Here's Rachel with Rosemary Wells on Worlds Awaiting.
2: We're on the phone today with Rosemary Wells. Welcome, Rosemary. Thank you so much, ma'am. Delighted to be here. So, one of the things I always love to ask authors and illustrators is, how did this all start?
3: Were you a writer and an illustrator when you were young? Yes and no. The one thing you have to understand is, I was brought up in the 1940s and 50s, and education and society and America was a very, very different place then. I'll give you a little anecdote. In the fourth grade, our teacher, Mrs. Conover, asked the whole class to go back to the library and draw a product map of Brazil. Well, I got very, very bored with Brazil very quickly, because uh, there were things that I didn't understand, like molybdenum and hemp. Who had ever heard of those things? And I decided not to include them and to put in many, many more exciting things that might come from Brazil, like candy canes. And I made up an entire map of Brazil. I made up cities with wonderful names and imaginary rivers because I thought the Amazon was just too few rivers. And I brought in my beautiful map to Mrs. Conover, and all I remember her saying very crisply was, Well, Rosemary, you certainly have an imagination. Now, please go back to the library and do an accurate map tonight. Thank you. <laughs> and that's the world I grew up in. So I kept my artwork very private. I drew uh, pictures uh, three hours every night. Absolutely. That's what I did with my time. You have to remember, there was no television. We had wonderful radio, and I would turn on programs like the FBI and Peace and War and My Gal Sunday and just draw. Uh, I copied. I copied all my favorite artists and the illustrators of the time. And I encourage my young artists, when I give a young artist workshop in a school, to go home, spend at least half half an hour every night and draw, sculpt, paint, whatever they like to do, make something, make something visual, and copy the artists they like. And do that for half an hour every night with the TV off, please, and no video games, so that... You can allow the art to come from within yourself. And this is really important, to have it be a part of you. I started drawing when I was two years old, according to my mother. And uh, I learned very, very quickly that you could amaze adults if you could draw well. So I learned, and I copied, and I tried, and I worked. And I started putting in the most important thing though I had never heard of it at the time. And I don't think anyone has isolated this until Bill Gates, but he really came up with it. He said, for anything, whether it was the success of the Beatles or the success of his computer or the success of a really great doctor, you have to put in your 10,000 hours. And so as a very young child, I was putting in my 10,000 hours as an artist and I had no idea I was doing it as a writer, but I was because I became an ardent reader. And the greatest uh, ingredient, the most important ingredient in the making of a young writer is for them to read. Rosemary, that that is a
2: beautiful story. And I love that sense of progression that you've put in all of this work from the very beginning you have developed over the years a quite an iconic style that I think most people would recognize, particularly with your illustrations. What training or kind of development did you do over the years in that 10,000 hours that you were developing to develop your specific style?
3: I copied the artist I love. Those artists who were my, my mentors, although probably half of them had died by the time I discovered their books. Those were the people I copied, and there are many of them, almost too many to enumerate. But I I looked, I had sharp eyes, and when I saw something that I wanted to draw, I would grab hold of that, take the book home from the library, and copy it as best I could. I think that uh, when someone has a gift or talent, as I was very, very blessed to have, uh, you don't need a lot of lessons or fancy stuff. You just need the time to do it and the wonderful time just listening to to the radio or music and just being without stress and without adult-generated activities too much. I think it's great that our kids play sports and take ballet, but I think you can also overdo that. Kids need time to just mess around by themselves. And that's what I did, either reading or drawing or mostly being outside and building tree houses and playing baseball. I'm completely self-taught. I went to the Boston Museum School for one year where their great, speaking of passion, passion was abstract expressionism, which is a form of painting that I have never once understood for one minute And was totally disinterested in. And I had a good time in the basement up there in Boston with other kids who could draw. But uh, it was not respected. It was considered a second-tier art to illustrate. It was considered a commercial art. And uh, I probably should have gone to Rhode Island School of Design. Here's a good personal detail. But uh, I wanted to marry a young man who was in Dartmouth College, so I chose the art school closest to Dartmouth College, which is what you do when you're 19 years old.
2: Rosemary, that journey is so fascinating, and <laughs> I, I really appreciate you sharing that with, with our listeners, because this sense of developing your skill and, and taking Taking life where it leads you, no matter what that is, is just a joyful, wonderful kind of expression that I think is is highly reflected in your work with that joy of life and the joy of engaging uh, with family and friends and, and community in a, in a very joyful way. And I think that your, your beautiful stories embrace that. Can you tell us, as as we wrap up our interview today, a little bit about why children's books and why children's illustrations? What
3: was it that led you to this field? Well, I was working. My husband was in—I uh, did marry that Dartmouth guy. Uh, my husband was an architect. He had four years—or actually five years of uh, graduate school, and I had to put him through. So I got a job in—first, uh, I got a job in uh, accounting of ladies' purses and bags— in uh in uh, a suburb of boston that lasted about a week and and i finally thought to myself well maybe i could work for a publisher so i went to work for a textbook publisher as a temporary summer replacement file clerk but i don't like filing so i got out of that pretty quickly i was very fortunate because i knew my history very well and they were doing a history book and the editor didn't really know the first thing about history so i wound up writing all the captions and selecting all the pictures and doing the design and just leaping into it. And of course, they didn't fire me. And I was taken on full time. And I loved it. I just loved it. And then when we moved to New York, my husband went to Columbia. When we moved to New York, I wanted to get into uh, more design. I got a job in real children's books, not just textbooks. And Uh, Then I saw books being published, and I thought, hey, I can do that too, and so I did. Uh, I don't take myself very seriously, and you use an enormous number of very serious words, and I never think about things like that. I never, never do. I don't think about journeys or communities or any of that stuff. I just don't think that way. It's probably because I was born in 1943, and these words were simply not used in my childhood. But I do think that my art has value and my stories have value, and I love doing it. I've had an absolute blast. It's been a wonderful career. Miraculously, it continues. And at this point in my life, I am trying to do only the books that I will be remembered for.
2: Well, Rosemary, I think that you have already done dozens of books that, at least, I will remember you for. And I know that <laughs> your your work has been an iconic part of of my life. And even though that may be a big word, I I really think it's true. Your work is definitely a part of the canon of children's literature in a very fundamental way, and will be for generations and generations to come. I appreciate I you so much. So. Oh, you shouldn't hope you should know so because it it's that you know way, yeah, I
3: never heard of the word iconic when I
2: grew up that wasn't a word <laughs> well it's it's a word for you now, and I use it with yes, with it all is. with all directness because I do truly believe that you are iconic in this field and Just so grateful for you to come on today and and get a a chance for our listening audience to, to get to know you a little better. That's one of the things I love about this show is that we're able to bring people that our children love as authors and illustrators and help them to develop a slightly more personal understanding of who you are and where you've come from. Thank you so much, Rosemary.
1: Children's book author Rosemary Wells, talking about the many hours of practice in writing and art, that resulted in her career as a successful author and illustrator. Next, Rachel chats with Jessica Verzello, Bethany Stevens, and Olivia Nolly from the BYU Education and Juvenile Literature Library. They discuss the young adult novel, Three Dark Crowns by Kendera Blake.
2: We're in studio today for a book chat with Jess, Olivia, and Bethany. Welcome, ladies. Thank Thank you. you. All right, Jess, start us off. Tell us, what book are we gonna talk about today?
4: Today, we are going to be talking about Three Dark Crowns by Kendara Blake. Um, It takes place on the island of Fenburn and follows three triplet princesses, each with their own magical ability. One is an elemental, one is a naturalist, and the other a poisoner. And each of these sisters, when they turn 16, will begin to vie for the throne. And as the rhyme says, two to devour and one to be queen, so... It's a fight to the death um, to determine the crown. That I love that fight to the death because it,
2: it is a fight to the yeah. death. So Bethany, tell us, what, what did you think of this fight to the death
5: book? So I was super excited to read this book because the premise was so fascinating to me. And there are elements that I liked, although I found that I didn't like it as much as I expected to. Um, I felt that it was a bit of an uphill trudge at the beginning of it. Um, There were a lot of shifting viewpoints, Um, It shifts between the sisters. And a lot of each of the sisters has their own cast of side characters and their own fleshed out world. But it becomes a little overwhelming to try to remember all of the characters and storylines, and it gets a bit confusing. So for that element, I felt that maybe the premise was let down a bit in the execution.
2: And you thought similarly, Olivia, you you thought, there was yes. some execution problems. I did. Like she said, I was very excited to read
6: it. I like the idea of the premise of the book. I just feel like she didn't handle it very well. Um, the characters were just, there were so many. It was hard to keep track, particularly in Arsinoe's story, because there's not just Arsinoe and her best friend and her best friend's mother. There's her best friend's grandmother and her best friend's grandfather and their estranged aunt. And it's just like so many characters. I felt like a lot of the side characters were much better written than the actual three main characters.
2: So, Bethany, do you agree or disagree with Olivia? Contrast? or?
5: Um, yeah, I would agree because there are so many characters, it's hard to really get that depth. Um, although I did find, though, it was slow at the beginning. I felt myself getting more invested as the book went on. And I think especially near the end of the book, it really picks up in the action. And, like, there's some twists in it that I found enjoyable. So by the end of it, I... Where I started, not sure that I would want to continue the series. By the end of it, I did feel like I'm interested enough to look at the next book and see where it goes from there.
2: What about you, Jess? What were some of those twists and things that interest you?
4: Oh, man. Well, I can't give away the giant twist at the end. It was, no, <laughs> don't give away the giant <laughs> I mean, twist at the end. <laughs> that really was the, oh my gosh, moment. Like, this is amazing. But for me, I really, I like the overall story and I like the conflict Um, that each one has, because there's a lot at stake, um, you know, whoever receives the power and becomes queen. But, you know, I would agree with Bethany and Olivia that it was distracting the change in characters. Um, I think it would have been improved if it had been very consistent, you know, a one, two, three kind of a pattern. But... I did find myself more invested in certain storylines than others, not so much that I was confused all the time, but I wanted to know more. I became more attached to certain characters than others as the story went on. I'm very excited for the next book. That's one of the things that I loved about
2: it is that sense of interpersonal relationships. And, you know, as someone who studied sociology and kind of group dynamics, that was the thing that intrigued me the most about this is that sense of having an individual And then taking them out of their normal context and putting them in this really unnatural context where people are really forcing you to think in a certain way. Mm -hmm. That kind of old nature versus nurture controversy and, and seeing the girls particularly as they were nurtured to be so vicious, I guess is the best way to put it. Not only towards each other, but towards the other people involved. It was just that interpersonal dynamic to me was just fascinating. So I, I agree that the, there's so many characters that that gets a little muddled, but in some way I think you needed those characters there yeah. mm-hmm. to really get that kind of that kind of interpersonal dynamic. So I, I know, Bethany, you're a sociologist too. Did, yeah, did you I mean, kind of attach to that too like yeah, I did?
5: Absolutely, I agree with what both of you are saying because that's exactly what I found intriguing about this, the idea that there are these three sisters who are being forced into this competition. I was really interested to see, I felt like it was kind of almost a social commentary on how women are often pitted against each other. So I wanted to see how that was explored throughout the book. And I think that's one of the strong suits of this, this novel is that it has a lot of promise in the premise
2: of the story. Yeah. I I mean, I think those thematic things were what was strongest in this Mm -hmm. novel for me. So what did you, did you think that too, Olivia? You're kind of nodding.
6: Yeah, I definitely thought that. Like I said, like the premise I really enjoyed and like the whole context of how they interacted with their different groups was really interesting. It was just that I feel like she didn't handle it as well as she could have.
2: And I think that's interesting too, because I think sometimes as a reader, we respond to the construction and the writing in an interesting way. And I No, Jess, you're an editor, and so you probably Mm -hmm.
4: read with kind of that editing eye. Yeah, with keeping the balance between each storyline and the language itself is, it's not modern, you know, it has that bit of that higher verse and that kind of whimsical explanation. It almost feels like a storyteller is behind it, even though it is from... I believe, first person, correct? Right, mm-hmm. from each sister, which is a little bit confusing also. So I think it could use a cleaner editorial eye, I guess. Yeah, um, that
2: makes a lot of sense. I, I I think that that muddling is is very interesting because I know, like, Olivia, you were saying earlier that a lot of the characters got mushed together in your brain. Is that they correct? Yeah. They did. So how did that
6: happen? Um, Like I was saying, particularly Arseneau, her storyline, There's so many naturalists around her that it just kind of – all blended together, honestly. I couldn't tell who was talking about who, just random villagers. I was like, wait, how did they fit into the story? Why is Luke important at all?
2: That's really interesting. I, I think that, that that kind of contrast and being able to build that contrast between characters is really important and allows the reader to connect with it. But Bethany, you're obviously wanting to read the <laughs> sequel. So what what do you hope that she's going to do with the sequel? I mean, where where do you um... hope that she would take it? Or What do you want to see different in the sequel? Um, I really hope that the author is able to kind
5: of get past some of the flaws in the writing that were present in this first book. And that as she gets into the second one, she'll be able to really find her place and her voice with each of the characters. And really be able to flesh out the characters better. I'm also very intrigued with the different political factions and
2: the intrigues going on. I feel like that was one of the strengths of the book. So as it moves forward, are you rooting for anyone in particular? <laughs> mm. It's so who, who, hard. Who, who, who did you connect with the most? Um, it feels so wrong to root for
5: one sister over like her two twins. So you kind of hope, that, I'm hoping like, for a happy
4: ending. Yeah, but yeah. You know, we'll they see. Don't have to kill each <laughs> other. That there's some way they can overcome that stigma and. Yeah. I do think someone's going to die, to be honest. But <laughs> Well, they almost have to, given yeah, yeah. the way it's
2: set up. <laughs> yeah,
4: someone has to die. But I'm hoping that some kind of peace can be found.
2: Yeah, I really like this conversation because it just shows that we can love a book but not like all of a book. Mm-hmm. Or we can dislike it in some ways or dislike some aspects of it. So I like this kind of balance. So as we close up today... Each of you tell us, why do you think someone would want to pick up this book? What is, what is its connection to them that you think, or the type of person that you think would be best to read this book?
5: I think I would pick this book up for its, its first of all, its intriguing premise, but also the way that it handles, as we were talking about, the interpersonal relationships Excellent. Okay,
2: Olivia, or who would you not recommend it to if you can't recommend?
5: Those?
6: Honestly, I mean, I, I did enjoy parts of it. Like, I, I definitely do want to find out what happens next. And that's why I'd recommend it. Because even though it had its flaws, it was still an interesting story. Like you said, it's the interesting premise that makes it so fascinating. And like, I, I say I'd say I recommend it to people who enjoyed Hunger Games, because it's very similar. It's like this fight to the death, and you want someone to win. But at the same time, you kind of want it to work out because it's like, you don't want people to kill each other. So I'd say if you like that, then this would be a good
2: read for you. That's a good connection.
4: Yeah, I would agree. I'd say most young adult readers would enjoy this. I mean, it has romance and fantasy and, you know, I have a, an ARC copy in my locker and I'm really excited to find out.
2: Find out what happens. What happens. So I think
4: readers will will enjoy it.
2: Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing the good and the not quite so good about your feelings about this very interesting book. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks.
1: Rachel Wadham with co-workers at the BYU Library, Jessica Verzello, Bethany Stevens, and Olivia Nolly, chatting about Three Dark Crowns by Kendara Blake. We finish up the show today with Cole Wissinger of the World's Awaiting Team talking about book adaptations. They say that Hollywood is
0: out of new ideas, but did they ever have any to begin with? Everything nowadays is a reboot, remix, or reimagining, especially when it can come from the pages of a book. This is nothing new. Some of the most classic movies on any film snob's shelf are adapted from the pages of novels, like The Maltese Falcon, Jaws, and even Gone with the Wind. Classic novels like Les Mis, it was a book, adapted into a movie, adapted into a radio drama, adapted into a musical on stage that was then adapted into a movie that was based on that musical, can all get very complicated quickly. For example, The Series of Unfortunate Events was a series of books adapted into one movie, and then adapted into a TV series a few years later. Star Wars, on the other hand, started as a movie that then spawned a couple other movies and a couple TV shows and some video games and over a hundred books. If that all seems convoluted, then wait until I tell you about this little-known author named William Shakespeare. The Bard has seen everything from faithful, word perfect adaptations, from theatrically trained Kenneth Branagh to cartoons and musicals, all based off of his works. Lion King, West Side Story, Ten Things I Hate About You, Nomeo, and Juliet. Believe it. They are all just Shakespeare. Some adaptations obviously take the source material more seriously than others, but some can have fun with their loose adaptations. Easy A is a high school dramedy adaptation of Hawthorne's classic Scarlet Letter that I read in high school. But the adaptation is being told using a girl who's also reading the Scarlet Letter in her high school class. It's kind of an adaptation within an adaptation. And if there's one thing that these books into movies have proven in these past few years, it's that they are box office gold. And it is much in thanks to a franchise of young people's books that I think have been mentioned on this show once or twice before. That is Harry Potter. Harry Potter put books into the hands of kids that wouldn't normally open them, and then the movies made that fantastical story even more accessible. And those movies demanded a certain level of faithfulness from the fans. Sometimes at the movie's detriment, to be honest. And then, as if one young adult fantasy book series being turned into a multi-million dollar movie franchise wasn't enough, Twilight, Hunger Games, Divergent, Percy Jackson, Maze Runner, Aragon, and others all came along as well to varying success. But, if there is one group of fans that will take adaptations more seriously than teenagers, and if there's one kind of adaptation that's even more profitable at the box office than YA Fiction... It is the comic book. Now these stories are on the small screen as well as the big screen. The Walking Dead, and it's nine seasons plus a spinoff and counting, are all rooted in a zombie comic. Archie Comics are no stranger to TV as Josie and the Pussycats were a Hanna-Barbera cartoon in the 70s. And then Sabrina the Teenage Witch had an animatronic cat in the 90s, all before Riverdale. Brought Archie and Betty and Veronica and all of their friends into the same live-action universe. But cinematic universes like that are currently owned by the superhero comic book. I hesitate to even put a number on how many Marvel movies there are because there will surely be another one by the time this airs. But these movies have found a way to adapt the comic book staple of event comics, giant-sized issues, and serialized stories into movies that everyone goes and sees. You see, adapting isn't just about taking character descriptions from books and then casting someone with the right colored eyes. It's about seeing what each medium gives us and using it to the story's advantage. We're always going to hear after each new movie taken from the pages of a novel that the book was better. But instead of comparing the two, remember what books and movies do differently. Maybe try to enjoy it for what it is. Especially The Lord of the Rings. Now those were great adaptations.
1: Cole Wissinger, talking about the different mediums where books can come alive. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in weekdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.